This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Housing hasn't kept up with Denver's population boom. That's what we learned on the show Monday. There are more new people than affordable places for them to live. So low- and middle-income folks especially, teachers, clerks, have been forced out. Today, we consider a kind of affordable housing that's under threat, mobile home parks. CPR's Sam Brash reports on one park in Aurora that may close. It's close to light rail and to the CU Anschutz Medical Campus. It's Children's Day at the Denver Meadows Mobile Home and RV Park in Aurora. Laura Valdez is breaking into a monkey-shaped piñata. A few wax and candy hits the pavement. Even at eight years old, Valdez has a pretty good idea of the situation at the park. I have heard that um, the, the manager wants to take out the houses. More precisely, the owner wants to close Denver Meadows next June. That'll force people here to relocate their homes. The park managers say closing will let them retire. Resident Petra Bennett doesn't buy it. She thinks it's really about development. Once he gets all of us out of here, then the rezoning is going to be much easier because there's no more low-income residents that could go ahead and give him any kind of flack. With the new light rail, the owner is trying to change the zoning for the 20-acre park. It would let a developer put in apartments, a hotel, new shops, but it would not allow a mobile home park. We all organized and showed up at the first zoning meeting. The commission voted not to recommend the change. Afterwards, the owner, Sean Lustigman, held a tense community meeting, which residents taped. Speaking with a translator, he told them that his decision to close the park was final. Even so, Aurora's city council tabled the zoning decision last summer. The conflict has stretched on for over a year now. Residents' rents have gone up, and they say the management is tightening park rules to drive them out. The owner declined to comment for this story. Christian Hendrickson is a lawyer who has represented other park owners. A lot of these communities, their goal is to continue to provide this affordable housing. That said, this is generally private property. People have rights in their private property up to and including to sell it. The situation isn't unique to Denver Meadows. Development is putting pressure on mobile home parks across the state. Andrea Chirioga Flor is an organizer with 9to5 Colorado. She says her office has become a kind of emergency helpline for endangered parks. This isn't just Adams County. I've gotten calls from Lake County, Eagle County, Summit County. And it's not always residents who call. She also hears from local officials. They worry that if parks close, their communities could lose housing for low-income workers. It's probable that if no actions are taken, that about 40,000 units of mobile homes could be, could be closed down. About 40% of the total mobile home units in Colorado. That estimate comes from the Corporation for Enterprise Development, a research and advocacy group. To avoid that fate, Denver Meadows residents thought they had an answer. They'd buy the park themselves. Our dream is the best safe living place for our families. That's Luz Galicia, president of Denver Meadows New Homeowners Association. She says ownership would give residents a reason to add a playground, new lighting. And we are planning to even manage our own park. And it would set a precedent by making Denver Meadows Colorado's first resident-owned mobile home park. Residents turned to Rock USA, a nonprofit that finances this kind of park purchase. They were willing to back the deal, but when the group's Bailey Dotson met with the owner, it didn't go well. 
he was very, very clear with me that they don't uh, have any interest in selling. Residents haven't given up hope yet. They're pushing Aurora to deny the zoning change in order to bring the owner back to the table. Without a deal, the residents will have to move their homes. That process can cost thousands, and there are few places for them to go around Denver. And for resident Petra Bennett, the park is also home. It's cheaper living than in a house house, but it's the same thing. You raise your family here, you make your memories here, and you put all of your money and pride into these homes. That's clear from looking at her yard. There are fruit trees, berry bushes. I planted all the grass, I dug the pond. Just, um, I created an oasis. She takes a seat, relaxes. It is a kind of sanctuary. But the reality is... It's an oasis built on someone else's land. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Well, now a woman who knows a lot about this subject. Esther Sullivan is a sociologist at CU Denver, and she spent two years living in mobile home parks that were being shut down in order to research that process. And Esther, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Help us understand what moving day looks like, because the tricky part here is that these folks often own their homes, but not the land underneath, of course. What does moving day look like? What does the time before that look like? Absolutely. Moving day is not a single day. This process is extremely long and extremely disruptive for entire households. These moves are very costly and they're very complex. So the phrase mobile home is a complete misnomer. These homes are not intended um, to be moved once they're initially transported from the factory and installed on the site. Right. They, have may, they may have been in, in that place for years. And once they are, they're just like any other home. Their frames slacken and settle in. Um, and so moving them can result in serious structural damage and loss of equity in the home. Um, it's also very difficult, even if the home can be moved, to find lots, um, as we just heard. Oftentimes, these residents are displaced to ever outer reaches of urban areas further away from jobs, from schools, from the social services uh, on which they might have formerly relied. Um, and all of this is if the home can be moved. In many cases, the home has been in place too long or it's had too many what residents would see as upgrades, additions made, um, porches added, and these things make the home very difficult, sometimes impossible to move. In my research, about a third of homes were unable to be moved. They were not structurally sound for relocation. So what happens to those homes if they can't be moved and the land is being sold? Those residents lose everything. They lose their accrued equity in the home. They lose the home. They're losing their parking community. In my research, I saw residents transition to living with families, uh, to buying second and third hand RVs and campers, which are not the same as a mobile home, and in one case to transitioning into homelessness. Uh, and so you say it is incredibly complicated and, and that mobile home indeed is a misnomer given how many can't actually be mobile. So with all the, the risk to the homeowner, why are mobile homes appealing in the first place? They're appealing because of the American dream. We can't underestimate the power of the American dream of home ownership. And mobile homes provide about 70% of 
new homes under $125,000. So these are a primary way that low-income individuals break into home ownership. The allure of home ownership in this country is not just reserved for the middle class. Is it easy to get loans for them given all of the risks that you described if the person doesn't own the land? Because um, mobile homeowners do not own the land, they get a different form. They're not, they don't get a traditional mortgage. Instead, they get what's called a chattel loan, which is more similar to a car loan and has uh, worse interest rates and sometimes is the subject of predatory lending. Okay. So is it just that they're prefabricated that makes them less expensive? Is it that the land doesn't come with it? Why do they wind up being such a a fount for affordable housing? It's both. So a mobile home um, is about $64,000 on average across the country compared to about $150,000 on average for a site-built home. Oh, a big difference, yeah. So part of that comes from prefabrication. But a large part of that is that mobile homes that are located in parks are especially affordable because the homeowner doesn't need to purchase the land, which is the bulk of the cost of a home. And so the great paradox is that these mobile homeowners, they want the American dream. They think that they've achieved it within their means, right? They haven't taken out large loans. Many of them own their homes outright. And yet the thing that makes these homes affordable, that the homeowner doesn't need to own the land, is exactly the thing that puts them at risk. Right. It's affordable, but it makes them vulnerable. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Do you find it um, somewhat ironic that we are talking about mobile homes at a time when tiny homes are all the rage? Do you look at the tiny home movements and how people view it versus mobile homes and mobile home parks and roll your eyes to some extent. (laughs) I only roll my eyes insofar that I get that question all the time about tiny homes. Yes, so I I need to develop a better answer. But I think (laughs) that the tiny home question is interesting in a couple different ways. Of course, a tiny home really is intended to be pulled behind a car. So it's smaller and it is more transportable. So there's that difference. But otherwise, structurally, these two housing artifacts are quite similar in that they're small, they're affordable. And so I think that the difference that we see in that one form of housing is totally celebrated. It's a hot new fad. It's the subject of TV shows. Exactly. And one is so heavily stigmatized, despite the fact that it's provided a crucial source of affordable housing in this country for a century. I think that really gets to the nature of the stigma that's producing some of this housing insecurity for mobile home residents. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm speaking with Esther Sullivan about mobile home parks. She's a sociologist at CU Denver who studied eviction in mobile home parks, in part by living in them in Florida and Texas. And we heard in our reporter Sam Brash's piece about the possibility of mobile homeowners getting together, purchasing the land, um, and essentially creating their own community so that it's not raised for development down the road. Uh, How often does that happen across the country and what kinds of protections do owners have? It's happening more and more, especially because of nonprofits like Rock USA, who I think have converted about 200 parks to resident ownership. They help with the financing. 
Exactly. They offer 110% financing. And it's never happened in Colorado. Yeah. Uh, Are there protections for mobile homeowners? Is there anything that if the landowner, who presumably has every right to sell the land, uh, wishes to, is there any recourse besides that method we just talked about? This really varies state to state, and that's why my research is comparative. Um, In Texas and Florida, these are the two states with the largest mobile home populations, but they're also states with very different housing laws, and that's indicative of mobile home housing policy across the country. Okay. What would you say about Colorado? And I know that there was a bill that failed in this past legislative session, I believe, that addressed some of this. That bill... um, introduced by Senator Kafalas would have really put Colorado on the map as a state that had really strong protections for mobile home residents. As it stands now, Colorado is not one of those states. It has pretty weak protections for mobile home residents. Can you say a bit of what that bill would have done? It would have um, allowed residents to... um, a longer length of time to submit a competing purchase offer in the event that their park was being sold. And it would have created tax incentives for the property owner, the landlord, to sell that park to the residents rather than sell it to a developer who would likely evict the residents and redevelop the property for another use. Presumably that would give more power to homeowners. Is there a danger with laws like that, uh, of hurting essentially small businesses, right? Uh, People who have operated these parks and wish to sell the property to whomever they want. Well, that's why the Colorado bill was really interesting. In other states, um, they've mandated that park owners give residents a right of first refusal. They give them an opportunity to purchase the park if they have another interested buyer. This Colorado bill wasn't going to mandate that. It was simply going to provide a tax break if the re- if the park owner chose to sell to residents, which I really think is um, an interesting and smart way to go about this. What did you learn when you lived in parks in Florida and Texas as they were closing down? I learned that these moves are extremely traumatic, not only for individuals, but for entire communities. Because parks are enclosed and because they're often segregated away from other uses as a non-residential space, um, they create really vibrant internal communities. And uh, there are often really strong networks of social supports. The among, kind of idea of like it takes a village to raise a child. Exactly. Uh-huh. And it's not only among neighbors, but oftentimes there's multiple generations of the same family living in these parks as there is in Denver Meadows. And when these parks are, when these mass evictions occur, residents are not able to all move together. They find one spot, park vacancies are oftentimes in the single digits. So one or two households might be able to move into a new park. So these networks are completely dismantled. Networks which might be stronger in that place than a traditional neighborhood, you're saying. When you look around the country, Esther Sullivan, is any state getting it right, in your opinion? Absolutely. There are states that are doing wonderful things. Give us an example. For instance, 
Colorado has a 10-day notice if um, a park owner is going to sell the land. Um, Connecticut has a 565-day notice. So the residents there are given time to, if they're going to collectively get together to purchase the park, they have time to do that. If not, they have time to make other arrangements to move. I guess I want to wrap up on this idea that, in your mind, mobile home parks are a critical source of affordable housing in this country. Is it fair to say that? Mobile home parks are this country's largest unsubsidized source of affordable housing. Thanks for your perspective. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Esther Sullivan is an assistant professor of sociology at CU Denver, and we talked about mobile home parks Her book, Manufactured Insecurity, is due out at the end of next year. She was practically broke and didn't speak much English, but Lorena Cantoravisi started a business, making and selling empanadas. She had worked in finance in her native Argentina, then in Mexico. She began selling her food to friends and family and eventually opened this shop, Maria Empanada, on South Broadway in Denver. Her success is evident because of how busy this place is even after the typical lunch hour and because this month, Cantoravisi collected an award from the Small Business Administration. They named her Small Business Person of the Year in Colorado. Okay, we are in the kitchen where the magic is produced. (laughs) Empanadas are a Latin American delicacy, doughy pockets with savory, sometimes sweet filling. We are making some sweet empanadas at this time. So we have the girls here that are every day making empanadas except Sundays. They fold the empanadas with their hands into a half-moon shape. Cantoravisi calls it a solcito, or small sun, with fork marks pressed into the seam that look like the sun's rays. These empanadas have pears inside, poached in marsala wine. So they are probably like more than a day getting the poach of the marsala. So the pear has a fantastic flavor, sweet, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very good, very good empanada. She might be a little biased, but customers seem to agree. We left the kitchen to sit down at one of Maria Empanada's wooden tables. Cantoravisi told me she has sensory memories of empanadas from her childhood. Her grandmother lived in Cordoba in central Argentina. She was living in a very uh, precarious uh, way. She didn't have electricity. So she was cooking in, uh, in something with gasoline. I don't know the name. And uh, she was doing empanadas. And then is when we, the kids, love to help because empanadas is kind of playing with Play-Doh, kind of like that. So um, she put a big pan full of vegetable oil. And yes, and we were doing empanadas with the meat that she did uh, pre-cook. We were folding it. We were doing everything with our hands. She was teaching me. We used the fork at that time so much. And then she was entering that empanada in the oil. Of course, guys, get far away from the oil. And we were running. I hear the, the, you know, those little fantastic things when you put something to fry. And after a few seconds, was the aroma coming out from that? But it was hot, so we needed to wait a little bit. Now, you choose to bake your empanadas, not fry them. So the oil risk is a little reduced 
Now, the, the store is named after your mom, right, Maria? So clearly this got passed down from generation to generation. That's right. I just need to tell you that my grandmother is Maria, too. So <laughs> at the same time, who doesn't have a Maria in your life? You know, a Maria, a Mary. So it was very important for me to put that name in, in the brand. You did not go into the empanada business when you were in Argentina. You were in the finance industry. Why did you want to start an empanada shop, though? Well, here things are different than in Argentina, you know. Here uh, came a lot of feelings, um, um, missing my country, missing, of course, my food, what I normally eat. We probably eat empanadas three or four times per week. It's easy, it's fast. So then is when empanadas ideas started. Was it hard to find a good empanada when you first moved to Colorado? Absolutely. No empanadas around. What brought you to Denver? I was looking for a better life. I was very tired of uh, the financial situation of my family, the financial um, stories of my country. I was uh, disillusioned about it, and I decided that I wanted something better for me. You met your husband here, who is American, and you decide to make empanadas. How did you decide what the first batch would be that you'd make? Were you keen on replicating the ones that your grandmother made with you? Actually, I replicated my mom. So what I did is uh, ask my mom, Mom, come with me tomorrow, tell me what, are you, what do I need to buy, and we will make empanadas, and I will start writing everything. And she said, no, I can't do that. I can't do that because I just grab a little bit of salt and uh, um, a little bit of pepper, and I just taste it, it little, little, needs a little bit more, I do another pinch of it. So don't tell me that you're going to do with a spoon, that I need to measure anything because I'm not going to measure anything. So that's, of course, her reaction. I say, okay, you don't worry. You will show me, and after you grab that pinch that you are going to throw it, we will put it in a spoon, okay? And I will do that part. For her, she made empanadas by gut, and you had to come up with the recipe as a result of it. So are you still making, essentially, your mom's recipe today? Yes. So that probably, I mean, was 12 empanadas, now we made it in 4,000 empanadas. You went back to South America to watch professionals make empanadas as well and learn the tricks of their trade. Uh, but I understand that it's, it's getting more mechanized there. The, the idea of making these by hands is, is somewhat quaint. Absolutely, yes. Everything is being more mechanized. So empanadas now are being made by, by machines. And that's a part of, of something that I don't want to forget, you know. I, I know that there's going to be some areas in the process that will, as the grow goes, we will uh, require machinery, of course. I mean, I need equipment. But I, w I never want to replace a hand by a machine. And that's why the last part or our part of the empanada is touched by a hand. And I think that has another flavor in it, you know. Well, I would love to see you make an empanada. Okay, so let's do it. Well, we are having here a filling uh, with chicken, red peppers, hard-boiled eggs, green peppers, and that's a very traditional Argentinian flavor. Tell us about the dough. Well, this is the dough that we cut it in discos. As you can see, it's kind of like a disc. It's a round thing. So we will do the chicken. I will put a little bit of water here because I can notice that the dough is a little bit dry and that's very normal in Denver. And I'm going to close it like this. 
with using my two or three fingers here, creating the art. So this is called repulgue. Repulgue is the um, closure of, of the dough. Can you put anything in an empanada? Yes, absolutely anything. Do you have a favorite empanada? My favorite is always the beef, the ground beef empanada. That's a very traditional. And right now I am in the corn mood. So it's a little bit spicy, but just a good balance with the sweetness of the corn. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm joined by Lorena Cantoravisi, who owns Maria Empanada here on South Broadway in Denver. She was just chosen as a Small Business Person of the Year by the Federal Small Business Administration. And even here, in that odd time between lunch and dinner, this place is bustling. You're also likely to hear the espresso machine in the background. Um, And before we talk more about empanadas, I have to ask about this espresso machine because there's something very special about it. Is that right? That is a machine that was blessed by the Pope Benedict. And uh, Victoria Arduino, that's the company of the espresso machine, is an Italian company. When they turned uh, 100 years old, they made this unique uh, edition, and they did only 100 of it. So they put all the 100 uh, espresso machines in a, in a truck, and they drove it to the Vatican, and then Pope Benedict is very well known because he say, everybody says that he loves espresso. So they gave the number 000 to him, and then the rest of the machines were all around the world. But they were all blessed by him. And that uh, we have the number 25. There's only four in the United States. Have there been any miracles with this coffee? Of course. <laughs> Look at the business how it's doing. So, yes. <laughs> These machines are really common in Argentina. And so this was about bringing more of the Argentine flavor to the restaurant, right? Absolutely. So when you are crossing the main doors here, you can see that you are in another part of the world. Another part of the world. I wonder if there are other South Americans in Colorado like you who see this restaurant as a gathering place, a place to maybe lose a little of the homesickness. Yes, Ryan, there's a lot of people that comes here. We show, for example, the soccer games from uh, South America or from Spain. In fact, there is a giant TV screen over your head right now playing a soccer game or football, depending on what part of the world you're in. How has being an immigrant to this country, do you think, affected your ability to succeed? As an immigrant, I think the difficulties is only on you. Your um, challenge with the language, your challenge in knowing how the country uh, moves. But once you get immersed and once you adapt to it, I don't see any obstacle. We are part of the, of, of the country and we are immigrants, but we are one person here that can succeed too. What advice would you have for people who've newly arrived in the country? My best suggestion is if you go to a place, an event, or you are invited to a party uh, just to meet people, you will see very clear the distinctions there. You will see probably a table that is full of Latinos and probably another table that is with the Americans. So the first instinct is going to your more comfortable son, so the Latinos. So don't do that. Try to go to the other table. Try to meet the other people. Try to get immersed. Try to adapt. Uh, The beautiful thing is that 
I mean, we don't speak good English. I will probably never will do that. But uh, you are not restricted to that. And nobody look wrong to you because of that. Actually, they help you. So it is uh, try to force yourself to be in the uncomfortable side of the comfortable, right? So go to the American table. And you might meet your husband that way. You, you met your husband here. And I understand that he is the one who nominated you for this small business award. And you got in the application like in the last minute. We completed, I think, in the car. And yes, like three minutes before the, the closing, uh, we were able to give the application. What's been the hardest part about operating this business and growing it? Well, I did have several challenges, right? Um, my biggest challenge first is that nobody knew what is an empanada. <laughs> So everybody at the beginning was thinking that my name is Maria and my last name is Empanada. <laughs> uh, of course, then came another challenge, right? Uh, knowing myself as an owner business. Now I was not an employee anymore. Now I was a business owner. And now, uh, well, at the beginning was me, then three employees, and now we are 26. What's your vision for Maria Empanada long term? I want to have a Maria Empanada nationwide. I want to uh, invade with empanadas everywhere. <laughs> I think it's a, a good concept, and I, I can't wait for more. An empanada invasion. I love it. Um, is your mom st is still around? Yes, and she lives like 10 minutes away from here now. She must be exceedingly proud of what you've done with her recipe. Yes, she is. The other day when we received the award here in Colorado, she doesn't speak English. So, of course, I needed to give her a speech. And when I gave the speech, uh, it was in English, but I gave her like a little papiro with all my words, what I was going to say in Spanish. So I told her, don't open it before. Just when I go up and start talking, then is when you can open and read that. So she was reading that, and yes, and I saw her at, right at the moment when she started crying and she put the paper down. She could not continue reading because she started crying. And of course, me in the middle of the speech crying too. <laughs> so yes, uh, she is very proud, and of course, I'm very proud of her because I think this is something that we built together. I think about the hardships right now in Argentina with the economy there. Um, and wonder how your family is doing and whether there's a part of you, I guess economically at least, that feels grateful you left. Yes, my family is still uh, struggling since always, but they are okay. For me, I can't be more blessed when I had the crazy idea to come into the United States. Do you think there's something um, specifically about the United States that has made your success possible? Could this have happened if you had moved elsewhere? No. No. I think definitely that there's something there's... You guys don't understand what how valuable is this country. All the resources that you have, you know. Sometimes it's, it's something that I feel that uh, Americans take it for granted. I'm still uh, getting very emotional about that. Right now I have mentors. I have organizations who help me. The SBA... Mikasa Resource Center, etc. So there are a lot of uh, resources and people that are supporting to the business to grow. So it's not only me like five years ago. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. This is so amazing that you guys are here.
Lorena Cantoravisi owns Maria Empanada, which has two locations in Metro Denver, soon to be three. She was just chosen as Small Business Person of the Year in Colorado by the U.S. Small Business Administration. They recognized Maria Empanada's sales growth and what it called staying power. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Four generations of teen moms are at the center of the new play, A Good Child Too Soon. It comes from Denver's Source Theater Company and runs through June 3rd. Jimmy Walker is the playwright, and Hugo John Sales directs. And gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. So the the play is based on a book called Before Their Time by Joelle Sanders, uh, published in 1991. And Jimmy, I understand you first came across this book a couple of years ago. After its publication, what struck you about it? Well, one of the things that struck me about it was the story of uh, this person who just couldn't seem to get ahead. I mean, I often wondered what happens to a person when they just keep trying and keep trying and keep trying. And how do they persevere? How do they overcome? Yeah, introduce us to this character. Uh, The character in the play, which is the same character in the book, her name is Letitia. Um, and she goes through quite a few struggles from her childhood to her adulthood. And through that, she learns to come into her own and become a part of herself that uh, helps her to really become the woman she wants to become. But it's a struggle, and we don't get to see the, in- the end of it, but we do get to see the struggle part of it. The metamorphosis, if mm-hmm. you will. Uh, and all of these characters are African-American. You thought to turn this into a play, uh, to adapt it. Talk about that process. I read the book. A friend actually handed me the book. Just subsequently, I was sitting at their house, and I said, oh, what's this? And I picked the book up, and I started reading it, and I wasn't able to stop reading it. So I said, hey, can I take this home? And they said, sure, you can have it. So uh, I took it home, and I started reading it, and I kept reading and. When I finally got to the end, I thought this would make a great play. At the time, it was kind of leveraged uh, so that uh, Whoopi Goldberg was actually going to – she held the rights to it because she wanted to try to make it into a film. Uh, The time went by where those rights uh, were exhausted and so – Joelle was kind enough after I called her because I said, I read your book and I really want to adapt it into a play. Yeah, again, this is the author. Yeah, and she said – well, um, I never thought of it that way, <laughs> so give it a crack, and that's what exactly what I did. Ah, and and it was uh, not a short process. I'll, I'll say that the story in your play um, are told mostly through the eyes of Letitia, and uh, she, along with her mother, grandmother, and great grandmother, all lived in Harlem, had children, as we said, when they were teens. Hugo, why did you think this was a good show for the source to take on for your theater? company to take on? The source, we deal with issues that are at the heart of the human condition. And this was truly at the heart of human condition. Yes. Say more about that. How so? In the sense that each generation had gone through the same thing, but they did not convey that to the generation that followed them. So thus, they fell into a lot of the same traps, which I always thought was interesting that had a word 
been said earlier or conversation had um maybe some of the woes of the the following generation wouldn't have happened Th- that is to say someone would have gotten the warning have kids maybe a little later in your life yes mm-hmm. or establish uh, find out what your life is uh, denise is uh, uh the character that is um letitia's mother and she was smart she uh, did very well in high school. The conversation about college was out there, but the most important thing for her in her life was, oh, I got to get married. But she was already four months pregnant by the time she graduated from high school. So her life automatically took that turn. And her mother even mentions how smart her daughter was, but she ended up basically living from paycheck to paycheck, just trying to raise children. Do you think Letitia will break the cycle? I'm hoping. And mm. if you come to see, it's uh, it's interesting because, uh, and Jimmy did a good job of this uh, with the writing, is that conversation that could have occurred all those years ago finally does occur. Mm. So, And just understanding that it's like they're surprised at the distance that their parent had traveled. And it's like, I never knew that. I never knew what you felt. Yeah. Gosh, I I think of my own parents and how much I'd like to get inside their heads. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about the new play, A Good Child Too Soon. What a lovely title, by the way, Jimmy, because that's not the title of the book, as we said. Uh, But this notion that that, uh, it's possible to have a really good child, but it just not be the right time in life. Uh, So the name of the book that uh, this was adapted from is Before Their Time by Joelle Sanders. And uh, we're speaking with the the co-founding members of the theater company, Jimmy Walker and Hugo John Sales. So, Jimmy, I I have to think that that, uh, this many roles for African-American females does not come along often in Colorado. Am I I right to say that? Oh, you're absolutely right. It doesn't come along that often in theater in general. Mm. Um, That was one of the impetuses of really looking at the book. It provided a lot of good uh, female roles along the way in terms of playing different ages and variances of uh, age and time. And that's one of the real important elements in the play is how time is played with. What do you mean? Well, because it does span four generations, you're looking at some of the things that each person had to deal with socioeconomically and how they had to deal with that time period in terms of how women were viewed. Or and, or, or black women in particular. Yeah, right, exactly, you know, specifically. Um, so it does provide them with a, a lot of um, kind of information and look and uh, the broad scope of what was going on during that time. Were there a lot of folks auditioning, Hugo, for the roles? Uh, we we did have a few people come in, not, not necessarily um, – uh, a lot, uh, which has changed over the last 40 years since we've been in theater, because even 10 years ago, we would we would have 60 or 70 people uh, vying for just a couple of roles. And now it's maybe 10 auditions. What's that about? I, you know, I don't know. It's it's uh, it's a change, though. It's it's something that's new. It's like I mean, it seems strange to me that in a place that's growing as fast as Denver, you wouldn't have had twice the number of auditions. Yeah, we just, uh, um, I don't know what that's about. Is uh, it possible that black female actors are disenchanted here enough not to show up? I, mean, I think it really has to do with that theater is difficult. 
Um, it's a hard medium. You're doing, you know, several shows a week. It's a long rehearsal process. And um, in Denver, particularly if you're doing film or television or commercial work, it's a lot easier to just do a one-day shoot and be gone, mm-hmm. you know, and be done with it. Uh, whereas uh, playing a character on a long term, it takes a lot more work, a lot more investment, and a lot more time and energy. Theater is hard. No, theater is hard. Mm-hmm. And these days, in this world environment, it's, to us, it's just fun. It's the work, the process, all of that's fun for us. Uh, some people m- don't feel that way. And it's it is so rewarding. I mean, once you've gone through that process, and then that um, interplay with the audience and actor is just something you cannot exchange for any experience in the world. That's that's what when people get the theater bug is that that electricity, that symbiosis that works between audience and and actor is just incredible. So, do you see it as part of your mission at the? Source Theater Company to groom, to nurture local talent, Hugo. Absolutely. That, that is actually our main um, purpose. Uh, we, we also like to do that for writers who come in, and, mm-hmm. and we try to provide them with as much uh, support as possible. Yeah, so you, your mission at Source is to create and mount, quote, culturally relevant new works. Yes. And Jimmy, why that focus on new? Well, a a lot of times you have um, traditional plays that are done regionally and locally time and time and time and time again. I think of Our Town or something like that. Exactly. Uh You know, Kiss Me Kate or, you know, there's Uh musicals. There's all sorts of glass menagerie. It's been done for years. It doesn't provide a space for those new plays or those new works to be shown or viewed. A lot of plays that are being reviewed now or being mounted are done on either the university level uh, because they're done through fellowships or grants. So because of the economic situation, the financial situation for backing and other things like non-proven or non-time-tested work, exactly. it's really difficult for new playwrights to get their work done or even seen. Do you hope that this uh, work goes on beyond the source? Oh, I, I pray it does. It, it's worthy and um, uh, more people should exper- experience it. Yeah, know? what do you think they're left with when they leave the theater after this show? A good child too soon. My feeling is... Um, to connect with those generations, to have the conversation, to understand that it's not even about love because these these women, generation beyond generation, love each other. They just don't talk to each other. <laughs> so it's about communication for me and, and um, just making sure I understand that I'm here for you because a lot of times uh, we think we say I'm here for you, but we don't. And so when people don't take advantage of it, we just think, oh, well, they just they didn't come to me. They, they must not be important. Not to leave that unspoken. Exactly. Mm. Gentlemen, thank you for being with us. Thank You're you. welcome. Thank you. Denver playwright Jimmy Walker and director Hugo John Sales. The play is A Good Child Too Soon, performed by Source Theatre Company at Denver Sioux Teatro. It runs through June 3rd. <laughs> A 
Ahead of Memorial Day, the story now of a strange statue in Idaho Springs. It depicts a man who never lived. He is a comic strip character carved in stone. For the story, let's chat with Matt Masick, editor of Colorado Life magazine. And welcome to the program. Hi there. What is this statue of? This is Steve Canyon. He was a, an ace fighter pilot in World War II. Then he, after the war, he uh, went on all sorts of adventures as sort of a freelance adventurer. Thing is, he wasn't actually real. He was a cartoon. He was the star of the Steve Canyon cartoon strip. Came out in 1947. Okay, lots of questions that raises. I mean, first of all, why would you build a statue to a cartoon character? Is there some Idaho Springs connection to this? No Idaho Springs connection whatsoever. So back in 47, Steve Canyon was the hot new cartoon guy on the scene. Kind of the Calvin and Hobbes of its day or something? Not quite. He was a tad more heroic than that. Uh, This was right after World War II. People were on a patriotic crest and really wanted to honor service members who had returned to the community. And uh, that's what Steve was. He he started out as a a fighter pilot, and then uh, he kind of integrated back into society but kept that adventurous spirit of of the war years going. I see. So he's really a symbol of so many of the troops who... Who have returned. That's right. And at that same time, the city of Idaho Springs was trying to revive its Gold Rush Days Festival, which had sort of gone on hiatus during the Depression and the war. And so the local junior chamber of commerce thought, well, we need to get people excited about our Gold Rush Days. Why don't we latch on to some other person's fame? How about <laughs> Steve Canyon? We'll rename Squirrel Gulch Steve Canyon. And so uh, that's how the connection began. And then I guess you've created the local connection and you can erect a nine-foot statue. Right. They invited uh, Steve Canyon's creator, Milton Kniff, to their Gold Rush days, and they put out a big production. They invited the governor. Everybody in town turned out. Everybody was real excited uh, to have Milton Kniff, the famous cartoonist, come to inaugurate Steve Canyon the Canyon. And then three years later, this has gotten a lot of press uh, nationally. The president of the Indiana Limestone Company read an article that said Idaho Springs wants to erect some kind of marker to really solidify this connection to Steve Canyon. And he said, well, I'll, I'll donate a nine-foot limestone statue. Hmm. And so uh, they had another big production. Uh, the governor came out again for this big dedication. And at that dedication in 1950, the mayor of Idaho Springs said, this statue of Steve Canyon is going to put Idaho Springs on the map of the world, believe me. Did it save their festival? Like, did it bring butts in the seats? Oh, yeah. It it really revived the festival. They even thought about calling it Steve Canyon Days. Such was the connection. So it, it accomplished that goal, at least in the short term. Okay. You write that some residents balked at the idea of honoring a cartoon character. So what finally swayed them? That's right. People said, we don't have uh, a statue of our town founder or any other thing. Why <laughs> should we have a cartoon character? And, and so... Uh, They thought about it and they said, well, this isn't going to be just for Steve Canyon. This is a monument honoring all military airmen who served in World War II and are prepared to serve again. Keep in mind, this is just a few months before the outbreak of the Korean War. I see. And so it takes on a bit more of a hefty symbol. Right. It is a a patriotic symbol honoring uh, our military airmen. 
And a cartoon character. And a cartoon character. Yeah, Steve Canyon, not not much of a name these days. When did it stop publishing? Well, it actually continued publishing until 1988, but it sort of lost its initial charm after uh, a few years. It wasn't quite as popular as it was in its early years. They probably would have been better off honoring Snoopy if they wanted to go for a longevity. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Finally, you say the only people who give this statue uh, any thought, really— are high school students. Right. At Homecoming, uh, Clear Creek High School, uh, they come and dress him up in all manner of hilarious costume. Uh, But people do respect Steve as sort of like a member of the community. It's not an honored hero so much as, oh, there's Steve. Hi, Steve. You can see Steve at our website, cprnews.org. Matt, thanks so much. Thank you. Matt Masick edits Colorado Life magazine, and ahead of Memorial Day, we talked about Idaho Springs' Steve Canyon statue. That's the show for today. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and CPR News on Facebook. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner.